Well, good morning. Good to be with you this morning. If you, if you have this outline of my, my sermon notes, you may be thinking, wow, we're going to be here for about five hours. And, uh, but I promise you, I won't keep you any longer than two hours. So, um, yeah, if you have a small pen, if you're taking notes, you'll, you'll have to practice your minuscule handwriting. Anyway, no, I, what you're getting today is, is a forest view, not a tree's detailed kind of view uh, from our passage this morning. If you do have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. This is, in fact, my favorite verse in the entire Bible and uh, I think it captures something of just how amazing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ really is. Uh, if in a very brief statement that the Apostle Paul makes here, and he says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is a passage about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, a lot of people have a very inadequate view of grace. Even many Christians don't fully grasp the riches of the grace of God. Many people have this idea that, that grace is simply what God does to make up the difference between our failure to meet his requirements, uh, the, the moral requirements of his law, and, and that what we lack in our ability, God makes up by kind of coming alongside of us and helping us do a little bit better. And uh, so many people think that way with regard to God's grace and that they couldn't be any more wrong. Uh, some people have this idea that if, if I just do a better job, uh, then, then God will come alongside and help me. And this fails to recognize that the Bible teaches that we are completely unrighteous. Paul tells us in Romans 3 that no one is righteous, no one does good, and even what we think is righteousness on our part coming from ourselves, Isaiah tells us is like filthy rags, right? This whole notion that God just comes alongside and helps us really undercuts the very notion of grace itself, as though we had something good to offer God, even just a little bit of good to offer to God, uh, we don't even have what we might say a D grade when it comes to righteousness. We have an F grade and we need the A grade that Christ alone can offer us. We, we fail to meet even one of God's righteous requirements. Jerry Bridges, if you're not familiar with him, he is an excellent author uh, and I recommend all of his books. He, he draws attention to this problem by, by an illustration that I think is helpful. If you could imagine two people, 
trying to leap across the Grand Canyon as though getting to the other side of the Grand Canyon was to meet those righteous requirements of God. Uh, Imagine comparing two people. Maybe one person would have the ability to jump 30 feet and, and perhaps the other person only five feet. Now you have to understand that the Grand Canyon is nine miles apart from rim to rim, right? That is 47,520 feet. Now you imagine somebody leaving, imagine this stage here, and you're leaping off 30 feet. (laughs) That's pretty far, but comes nowhere near 47,520 feet. Now, one guy who leaps 30 feet may leap five times more than the guy who can leap six feet. But it's meaningless. It's completely meaningless. We need the bridge of Jesus Christ in order to bridge that gap between our unrighteousness and the righteousness that God demands of us. But Jerry Bridges says that even this illustration is inadequate in our understanding of grace because it assumes that people are actually trying to leap across this Grand Canyon. The fact of the matter is is that most people assume that they've already met the righteous requirements of God. Yeah, they might need a little bit of God's grace, but they, they look at it as just taking a little step as it were, into the grace of the Lord. They have narrowed the width of the canyon in their minds such that it's just a comfortable little step. And this completely misunderstands the nature of grace. Now, I want to add a whole new dimension to our topic here this morning when we're talking about grace As Christians, oftentimes we tend to define grace with regard to our human inadequacy, our inability, and our unworthiness. Okay, this is the way we tend to to think about grace. When When you think in your minds, what is a definition of grace? We would say it's the undeserved favor of God, right? Because we are undeserving, we are unworthy. But I want to say to you this morning, that's only half of the equation in terms of understanding the true nature of God's saving grace. Because where we really find the substance of grace is not in our unworthiness, but in the worth of Christ. In the ability, the perfect ability, the perfect righteousness of Christ that completely overcomes our utter inability, inability, our utter unrighteousness. And that this morning is what I want to draw your attention to, and it's the, the thing that Paul wants to draw our attention to in this passage. The fact of the matter is that in order for God to extend true saving grace to us, it required a very steep price on his part and what it required was the incarnation it required the incarnation of the second person of the trinity the son of god he had to become a human being jesus christ 
had to humble himself. He had to condescend himself to our status as human beings. And he had to humble himself even beyond that. He had to experience the fullness of what it means to be a human in terms of our being subject to the curse that rests upon this world in terms of both our weakness and, and the temptations that come our way. And, and Jesus suffered all of these things and he humiliated himself and, and subjected himself to such depredations that it required him even to die even a brutal death upon the cross. Jesus had to move from the state of his glorious position as the eternal son of God into this inglorious human realm. And he had to humble himself beyond compare in order to extend us grace. And when we see this, when we see this picture of what Christ had to do in order to extend grace to you and I, at that point, we can begin to understand why Paul draws attention to this particular aspect of grace in this passage here in verse 9. You see, the big picture here in in. 2 Corinthians 8, is Paul is addressing the Corinthian church and, and urging them to join other churches in their region who have made a financial contribution to the needs of Christians in the city of Jerusalem. And so he is urging these believers in Corinth to exercise generosity. In other words, he is asking them to act in a gracious way through their giving, through their generosity, to meet the needs of needy Christians. And in order to do that, he certainly draws attention to the example of other churches in the area, particularly in Macedonia, which would include Thessalonica and and Berea and Philippi, churches that we're all familiar with in the New Testament, But then he goes to the ultimate example of generosity, the ultimate example of gracious self-giving, which is Christ himself. So this morning, I want you to see, as Paul wants us to see, that we have to have this picture of God's grace that comes through the person and work of Christ And that Jesus, in taking on the frail poverty of humanity in order to make us rich by his grace, so that we, out of the overflow of the riches of Christ's grace, can be gracious towards others. That's my plan this morning. In order to do that, Uh, We're going to look at three aspects of this passage. We're going to begin, first of all, by looking at the poverty of the rich son of God. And this is where your first part of your outline is. We've got 14 points there, right? I'm going to walk through these points very quickly because I want you to see this big picture of what was required of the son of God in order 
to show his grace to us. He had to move from this position of the richness of his pre-incarnate glory as the very son of God, eternally God of God, and then moving to this position of poverty as a human being, total condescension and humility. And it is in this movement from his glory to this inglorious realm of humanity that Jesus had to move if he was going to extend his grace to such poor wretches as ourselves. So I want to paint a picture of what this looks like and and hopefully you'll begin to gain at least a small glimpse. That's what Paul's doing. He's just trying to give us a glimpse into, into a massive reality that had to take place in order for God to extend his saving grace to us. Now, as we look at this passage, I want you to notice the word know. Paul's saying, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the Corinthians aren't unaware of the reality of God's grace, right? They have an intellectual understanding. They have a basic intellectual grasp of what the grace of God means, but they also have an experiential grasp because they have experienced this grace themselves. Christ's grace has saved these believers and so they know about this grace, but, but Paul wants them uh, to go even deeper. He, he, he's writing this not just as a reminder, but as a means for them to meditate deeper on what this grace is. Do you really understand what it means for Christ to go from the riches of eternal glory into the humility of everything connected to him taking on the poverty of humanity. Now again, this is important that we understand that we're not just focusing our attention upon grace in terms of our unworthiness, although that is true, but upon the worth of Christ. And what I want you to see here is that there is, there is, a, there is a deep kind of paradox that we're going to look at this morning in terms of the relationship between the richness of Christ's deity and the poverty of his humanity. And it is in that, that paradoxical um, contrast between these two aspects of the person of Christ that we begin to see his grace. So that's what we want to do this morning. We want to look at what this means. Now, you might notice that this passage is very similar to Philippians chapter 2. And I would be remiss if I did not draw attention to this passage. Philippians chapter 2, you might want to turn there quickly. I'm going to look at verses 6 through 8 because you'll see some strong parallels between these two passages in Philippians chapter 2, Paul again says, as he's speaking of Christ in verse 6, that he existed in the form of God. In other words, this word form means that, that, that Christ in, in his outward appearance represented an inward essence, which is God himself. In other words, 
Paul is affirming that Jesus is indeed God and he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. I'm reading from the New American Standard. A better translation of this word grasp is exploited. In other words, Jesus didn't try to take advantage of his status as the eternal son of God when he became a human being. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be exploited Rather, what he did, as verse 7 tells us, is he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, and not just any death, but even death on a cross. You see, Jesus enjoyed all the abundant Riches of infinite divine glory, but then willingly took upon himself all the finite and inglorious aspects of humanity and even descending so far into this humiliation of humanity that he subjected himself to the most humiliating kind of death in order to display the wealth of his grace to us. So let's gain a bit of a glimpse of of some of these paradoxical relationships or contrasts between Christ's deity on the one hand and his humanity on the other. And both of these realities in the one person of Christ are essential for us to understand his saving grace. They are essential for us to understand the whole Christian faith. If Jesus is not the God-man, there is no salvation. There is no grace. There is nothing for us. In terms of the saving power of the living God. So the first is that divinity assumes humanity. This is basic, right? Jesus became a human being. Now, it's very important to understand that when Jesus became a human being, he did not cease to be God. And he did not cease to have all of his attributes as God. That cannot be. God can't simply just stop being God. Jesus never stopped being God. And his humanity does not somehow compromise his deity. The two exist in this this unique kind of tension, which makes Jesus Christ the most unique individual in the history of the universe. We see that the creator, the one who made all things, Jesus Christ being the instrument, the divine instrument of creation, now suddenly takes on a created nature, the uncreated one suddenly now takes on a created nature, number two, that is. Number three, the infinite one assumes a finite nature. Right here is God who is infinite in all of his attributes and characteristics and and, and 
being as the God of the universe suddenly now takes on all of the finite limitations of humanity that you and I experience. Number four, the independent one becomes dependent. When we understand the nature of God, we understand that God needs nothing. God is wholly self-sufficient in his own being. God is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. He needs nothing. He didn't need to create anything. He doesn't need us by any means. He needs nothing. And here Jesus Christ in his humanity, took on a human nature that now suddenly has to become dependent upon others. And ultimately, Jesus, in his self-emptying, which is a way of simply saying that in his humanity, he veiled his glory and he lived primarily in the mode of his humanity in his ministry on earth, And in doing so, he was fully dependent in his humanity upon others and particularly upon the Holy Spirit in order that he might accomplish all that God set forth for him, all that the Father set forth for him. Number five, the lawmaker is subject to laws. This blows my mind. Because Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's very important to understand that when Jesus was incarnated, when the Son of God became a human being, he did not cease from upholding the universe. Throughout the span of Jesus' ministry on earth, he continuously upheld the universe by the word of his power. And yet he himself, as a human, became subject to the very laws that he made and was controlling at the moment that in his humanity he was being subject to those laws. Amazing. Number six, the unchanging one is subject to change. One of the most important attributes of God that we don't really tend to focus much upon is what we call the immutability. God is not affected by anything that takes place in his creation such that he is adversely moved in one way or another or somehow affected toward change. And yet, in Jesus' humanity, he subjected himself to all of the fragile, vacillating conditions of humanity. He became hungry when at one point he was not hungry. He was fully satisfied at one moment, and then the next moment he became thirsty. He was fully awake and, and rested in one moment, and suddenly the forces of his own laws of creation caused him to become tired so that he would fall asleep. Number seven, the invisible one was made visible. 
God in his very being is an immaterial spirit. But in the incarnation, he acquired a material body. Again, a body that was now suddenly subject to all of the laws in the creation that govern such material bodies. And again, these two things are in tension because at no point does Jesus cease to be God. It's simply that in his humanity, in his what theologians call his kenosis, his self-emptying is the term that Philippians 2 uses, his, his, his deity is, is being veiled by his humanity. That is his self-emptying of himself. He didn't empty himself of his attributes as God. He simply veiled those attributes so that he could accomplish his purposes on earth in order to save you and I. Number eight, the omnipresent one is spatially located. <laughs> Does this not blow your mind? God is omnipresent. He is present everywhere. This is another way of saying that his presence is transcendent. It's not present in everything. He is above everything. He transcends everything and therefore he is present everywhere. And yet in his incarnation, Jesus suddenly now through his humanity becomes spatially located. Right? He's confined to particular places such as Bethlehem or Galilee or Jerusalem. How do we understand that? I don't know. I don't know. Number nine, the timelessly eternal one now suddenly lives in time. Again, understand this. God, because of his transcendence as the creator, is not subject to his own creation. He transcends that creation. Therefore, he transcends space and time. It's not as though God exists in, in time like we do, where, where we experience successions of moments you know, that just like boom, 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 that, that, that move from one direction to the other. God is not confined to this sequence of moments that we call time. He transcends all of it. God isn't like looking into the future because the future hasn't happened for him yet. That is something that only human beings experience, not the divine nature. And yet Christ, in his humanity, became subject to space and time. What a paradox. What an amazing thing God did to demonstrate his grace towards us. Number 10, the omnipotent one takes on weakness. Unfettered power, divine power, now suddenly coexists with abject human weakness. Amazing. Number 11, the all-knowing one 
learns and grows. Colossians 2.3 tells us that Christ is the source of all knowledge. He knows all mysteries. He He is the source of all wisdom. And yet if we read in Luke chapter 2, particularly verses 40 and 52, we learn that Jesus, as a human being, actually learned and grew in knowledge and wisdom. And yet he is the very source of all knowledge and wisdom as the God of the universe. Number 12, the untemptable one is tempted. James 1.13 makes it very clear that God, who has no sin, therefore is not capable of sinning, and furthermore is incapable of being tempted by sin. It's not possible that the divine nature can be tempted by sin. And yet Jesus, in order to fulfill his mission as the Savior of the world, had to be subject to temptation. And he had to overcome temptation and live a perfect life of obedience to the Father so that through his righteousness we might be saved. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus experienced every temptation that we as humans experience. See how this is important and how it, how it helps us understand when the critics try to say, oh, you know, look, look, the Bible contradicts itself. Here in one passage you say that, that, that God can't be tempted. Well, you claim that Jesus is God, but here it says that he's tempted in every way that we are. It's because people fail to understand the uniqueness of Christ that he is both fully God and fully man at the same time. And as God, he cannot be tempted in his divine nature, but as a human being, he is tempted. And yet when you put these two natures together, he overcomes such temptation perfectly in order to come to the aid. Those who are tempted, I have more to say about that in a moment. Number 13, the unsuffering one now suffers. God in his essence, God in his very divine nature experiences no suffering. He cannot be affected by pain and misery. If it, if it, if it were true, that would indicate a weakness in his divine nature. But Jesus in his hum, hum, human nature suddenly now become subject to all the pain and suffering that you and I experience, and he experienced all such pain and suffering, even to such extremities that no one, no human being has ever suffered to the extreme degree that Jesus Christ suffered and died. Isaiah foretold this by calling Jesus, the Messiah, a man of sorrows, and one who is acquainted deeply, 
intimately acquainted with grief. And finally, number 14, the immortal one becomes mortal. The God who lives forever and ever as Revelation 4.9 tells us, suddenly now becomes subject to death and not just any death, but a pitiable, pitiable and brutal death upon a cross. I want you to understand this morning that this, this broad survey of the character and the person of Christ that without his incarnation, without the second person of the Trinity becoming a human being, without ceasing in any aspect to be the God of the universe, but without this incarnation, without this humiliation, without this abject suffering and this brutal death, folks, there is no salvation. There is no saving grace. If God was going to extend saving grace to wretched sinners, it was necessary that the Son of God take on all of these aspects of humanity and humble himself in this abject way. In other words, to move from the riches of his glory and taking on the poverty of humanity and death for us. And that leads to my second point this morning, which is what does this mean for us? It means for us the riches of the poor child of God. I want you to notice something. Go back to, to, to the passage at hand there in 2 Corinthians 8 9. I want you to notice how Paul is very personal in what he says here. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Notice this is not just some impersonal act on the part of the Son of God. This is not just some sort of general thing that, that God is inviting everyone to participate in. No, Paul is saying that Jesus Christ did this for you. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then you can be absolutely assured that Jesus Christ became a human being and subjected himself to all of this humiliation for your sake. Personally, directly for you. He died for your sins. So that you, through his poverty might become rich. He did it for you. And every believer who turns from their sin 
places their faith in Christ. Jesus is not like, you know, your typical politician who claims to represent uh, people within his constituency and, and acts as though he knows every one of us personally. Right? That's not true of Jesus. Jesus does know every one of us personally. He knows his sheep, and Jesus came, according to John 10, to die for his sheep, that he might redeem them and save them by his grace. So what did he do to make us rich? How did his poverty make us rich? Quickly, I want to look at just six things, and then I'll draw us to a conclusion with my third point. First of all, Jesus Christ took our sin and gave us his righteousness a classic, very important passage just a few pages earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul, again speaking, saying that, the, that he, that is the Father, made him, that is Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what theologians call the great exchange right? Jesus took our sin. He took the guilt and the weight of our sin and he rested it upon his shoulders and he sent that sin into oblivion. He sent our guilt into oblivion through his death on the cross, satisfying God's demands of justice against us. And simultaneously, he then took his righteousness, his perfect righteousness by his overcoming all of sin, uh, the, the temptation to sin that was subjected uh, against him and was perfectly obedient to God in his righteous law so that Christ's righteousness then could be imputed to our account so that when God looks at us, he does not see us for who we are in ourselves, but he sees us through Christ and what Christ did in perfectly obeying the law of God on our behalf. So Jesus gets all of our sin and poof, gets rid of it and gives us all of his righteousness so that we could be justified, so that we could be accepted in God's sight. But that's not all he did. Number two, Christ was bound that we might be freed. There is a sense in which we could say that Jesus, in taking on humanity and subjecting himself to all the humiliations that he did, uh, in a sense became a slave Bearing the unbearable weight of our sin under the heavy hand of the wrath of God so that we would be free. Jesus says that if you are a sinner, if you have sinned, you are a slave of sin. But if you have placed your faith in the Son of God, he will set you free from sin and death and the curse and the devil an eternal hell. He did that for you if you have placed your faith in him. Number three, Christ was forsaken 
that we might be forgiven. He bore all the frailties, all the weaknesses of humanity, all the cruelties that come against human beings living in a fallen world. He was, according to Isaiah chapter 53, he was despised and forsaken so that we would be exalted and forgiven. Number four, Christ died that we might live. Ironically, it was only through the death of Jesus Christ, the bloody death of Jesus Christ, that he could actually defeat death. It was only by Jesus taking upon his shoulders the weight of the guilt of our sin that he actually destroys sin in the life of the believer. In order that we might live. We don't have time this morning, but I encourage you to read Romans chapter 6 verse 8 through 11 and reflect upon what that passage says uh, with regard to what Jesus did in his death and his resurrection in order to give us life. And it could be no other way. Number five, I said I'd come back to this. Number five, Christ was tempted so that we might overcome temptation. Now, let's look at this. I do want to draw your attention to this passage. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says there. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he himself was subject to the same weaknesses as a human being. But the one who was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, therefore, what, what is the writer's conclusion from this? Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If Jesus was not subjected to all of the temptations that you and I experience, he could not come to our aid, sympathizing with us and extending to us his grace to overcome sin and temptation if he himself had not been subject to the same and won the victory. Finally, and this is not exhaustive by any means, I'm just giving a brief survey here, right? Number six, Christ descended that we might ascend. In other words, Christ took residence in this cursed, broken world. Experiencing all of the evils, both in terms of moral evil foisted against him and and living in a a cursed world where all calamities and diseases and all that affect us. 
He himself subjected himself to what we might call natural evils as well as moral evils. In order that he might overcome all of that so that we as believers in Christ, as his sheep, could take residence in a gloriously restored world when Christ has completed his work of redemption and turns this cursed world over to its own death and fiery destruction in order that out of those ashes he will bring forth a new world where the curse is gone. Right In that restored world, in that new heavens and new earth, there will be no more curse. There will be no more pain, no sin, no limitations to the glory that we will all experience as believers in Christ. No temptations, no evil, no devil, no death. Are you getting a bit of the picture of Christ's descent from the riches of divine glory into the inglorious realm of humanity so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Without his poverty, there'd be no inheritance. There would be no wealth of treasure stored up for us in heaven. This condescension of Christ is the very substance of his grace. And we can't understand God's grace until we understand what the person of the Son of God had to do. It was necessary in order for us to experience salvation in order for us to experience saving grace. Now, Paul is just, just giving a glimpse. He's just trying to, to, to shine a quick spotlight on Christ so that we would reflect and meditate on these realities. Why? For this simple reason. My third point this morning, the gracious giving of the child of God. Paul is doing all of this. Paul is giving Christ as an illustration so that he could encourage us to be generous, right? So that, that the Corinthians would join the other believers who were taking up a collection and out of their financial poverty, being generous to give a gift to other believers in need. And there's two reasons that, that, that I believe Paul draws our attention to the example of Christ, to the person of Christ, and I want you to think about this. Number one is, is simply this. This is what Paul is trying to get us to think. If Christ has gone to such extraordinary lengths to extend his grace to us and to fill us with that grace, how could we not, out of the overflow of that grace, extend ourselves to others around us who are in need. Are you not moved to compassion and mercy for others, for fellow 
brothers and sisters in Christ. Too often we think, ah, yeah, I know this person is in need. I know the church has financial burdens and I know that, that you know, somebody needs my time and resources and my energy. Ah, but man, I've got other things that I've got to do. I've got my own needs to meet. Yeah, I've got really other important things and I, I just can't really be bothered with this right now. Paul is just simply saying, he's saying, look, look at what Christ has done for you. You know, perhaps, perhaps Jesus had better things to do than to submit himself to humiliation and death and suffering and the wrath of God so that we would have our deepest spiritual needs met. Christ sacrificed his all. Can we not be willing to sacrifice even a little for the needs of God's people, for the needs of his church? That's the first reason. Paul wants the example of Christ's grace to motivate us to be generous. But secondly, he wants us to understand that it is the actual impartation of God's grace that enables us. His example not only motivates us, but his very grace itself that we have all come to know and experience as believers in Christ, that grace is what enables us to be generous. It enables us to be gracious ourselves. Without this grace, it is impossible for us to be gracious towards others. And that is at the very heart of what Paul is trying to draw our attention to in this passage. The all-glorious poverty of Christ makes us exceedingly wealthy, not financially, but spiritually. But out of that spiritual wealth, we can give of our time and energy and resources, financial resources, to support the gospel of Jesus Christ as he builds his church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing passage, Father, that we could only just briefly touch upon just the depth of the riches of the person and work of Christ and how this demonstrates his grace towards us, wretched sinners, Father, who are desperately in need of your grace. And yet, Father, as we have come to experience that grace, Lord, you motivate us and you enable us to pour ourselves out as Christ did, to be generous and gracious towards those who are in need around us. Father, we thank you for this encouragement. We thank you for your grace. 
Father, without it, we would have nothing. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.